For many people, the world of nature is as close as they often come to an unconscious sense of the religious. And there's nothing in nature quite so calming and relaxing as sitting by the water's edge. So it is not surprising to find in water one of the great universally recognized symbols of renewal. Water imagery is found throughout the Bible, in dozens of psalms, throughout Proverbs and the prophets, in parables of Jesus and the letters of Paul. We read in Kings and Chronicles of the river Kidron running through the valley between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, beside which the Judean kings Asa and later Josiah came to their senses, leading important reform movements in the early history of our tradition. In the New Testament, there's the Samaritan woman at the well who longs for and receives water that endeth her thirst. Revelation assures the faithful that that the saved will drink free drafts from the spring of the water of life. In the book of Acts, those who are baptized in water experience a rebirth in spirit. Eastern religions, too, look to water for insight. As we heard in this morning's third reading, water is a favorite symbol for Lao Tzu, of Lao Tzu's for the Tao, that profound and mysterious sub and metastratum of the universe out of which everything is born. For many Unitarian Universalists, including many here, according to the survey compiled by your search committee last fall, feeling close to nature and connected to its cycles is central to your sense of the sacred. Landscaping working in the garden, walking in the mountains or on the beach. These kinds of experiences are where many Unitarian Universalists feel closest to God. For others, and this this includes a lot of our young people, there is great religious meaning drawn from ecology and efforts to support it. Plus, there's Earth Day that we celebrated last month, With this in mind, I've chosen the symbol of water or watershed as my topic this morning. But in truth, the topic was chosen for me as it's been part of my regular meditation practice for the last 40 years. What do I mean, meditation? I lead the congregation in various kinds of meditation and prayer here week after week to help demystify these practices. Forty years ago, the very word meditation brought visions of navel-gazing yogis or strange esoteric fakirs sitting on beds of nails. Nowadays, we recognize all kinds of meditation, many quite accessible to Western minds honed on pop culture and television. Just reading poetry or fairy tales or contemplating a beautiful painting can be meditation. Reading certain kinds of philosophy can be meditation. Working in the garden, listening to music, these are kinds of meditation too. Ways to relax and get in touch with our deeper internal rhythms, allowing the unconscious to bubble up 
and clear our heads of the never-ending thoughts and chatter therein, and thereby elevating our consciousness. But what do I mean by watershed consciousness? How did it become my meditation? As a child growing up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, I lived across the street from a huge wooded park with a lake in it. In the 19th century, Shaker settlers had dammed a small river, Doan Brook, creating what became a sylvan chain of suburban lakes. A long dilapidated mill house and other ruins were, to my eight to 10-year-old way of thinking, a perfect venue for adventures. I wasn't supposed to go over there without a buddy, a rule I usually complied with. We'd play around in the little streams, building dams, skipping stones, and fantasizing with makeshift boats, just playing around as youngsters all do at the water's edge. I remember also being in high school around the same time, fourth, or being in school, excuse me, about the same time, fourth through the sixth grade, and learning geography, a subject I did well at and enjoyed. I remember learning the shapes of all the states. There are many among us this morning who were I to show them outlines of the various states uh, would be able to identify each one by shape. They'd say, why, that's West Virginia or that's Idaho. Some of them are pretty easy, but some look a lot the same. I think that's Kansas, but it might be one of the Dakotas. But still, we all know roughly what the outlines of the 50 states look like. If, on the other hand, <clears throat> I were to hold up an outline of the Richards Creek watershed in which many of us live and in which everyone in the sanctuary is currently sitting in, we'd probably only get a couple of us among us who would know what they were looking at. Well, eventually I realized, not in the fourth grade, but years later, that I had been ripped off in a way that learning geography in school had been restricted to learning political geography, as though God had etched the American state boundaries on creation's eighth day. What I realized, essentially, was that it's not a very sensitive awareness to remember what West Virginia looks like. But it's an extremely sensitive awareness to know what one's own little watershed looks like. Nevertheless, it took me a long time before I came back to that. What brought it home to me, which is often the case in all of our lives, was a deep personal crisis, my divorce from my first wife in 1982. That year, 1982, was an extremely tough one for me. Things had, that had been very dear to me were falling apart before my eyes. I had not wanted to get divorced, but the facts were there. And my initial angry, hardened responses did nothing to heal the rift between Susan and me or my personal sense of loss and pain. Hardened but determined, I got into my work at the First Unitarian Church. At the time, I was assistant minister there. One of the things I'd been involved in that year was helping design and run an adult program, which we called OASIS. We were trying to create retreats and workshops that fostered a sense of the spiritual. We'd arranged for four such events 
during the course of the year. And one of them, which I had set up much earlier, but which came about shortly after Susan's and my separation, was a Zen retreat weekend. The leaders <clears throat> were a married couple, Lou and Blanche Hartman, both of whom were Zen monks. They had led fascinating lives before embracing Buddhism, Lou as a radical newscaster and Blanche as a scientist. Eventually, however, they quit their day jobs and became monks at the San Francisco Zen Center. Lou had gone on to become the head priest at their monastery at Tassajara in Monterey County. The Hartmans were in their 60s and remarkably cool. Plus, their heads were shaved. This was long before Sinead O'Connor, and seeing a woman with a shaved head was shocking to me. But by any and all standards I've ever known, Lou and Blanche were beautiful people. The Oasis event took place over a long weekend. We spent many hours in serious meditation and work. The work was oiling all the pews and woodwork in the sanctuary. These were beautiful redwood furnishings that had been brought from the church's original building, old and smoothly worn, but dried out and in need of both oil and elbow grease. We also oiled the altar, scraping off years of candle wax, and the pulpit and lectern, too. It was hard and painstaking. Each day began at 4.30, sitting zazen for two hours, and then eating breakfast, all silently. Then we'd go to work. Meanwhile, as the weekend continued, I felt a growing sense of trust and relationship with Lou Hartman, and I really liked that. We had a brief talk as I helped him prepare our breakfast Sunday morning, and that had meant a lot to me. Soon, however, the weekend was over, and I was back into the world of everyday affairs. I quickly forgot about meditation. In April, my just-turned two-year-old daughter and I moved from the dwelling we had all shared with her mother and into a little house, a cottage, really, at the foot of the Berkeley Hills as they flatten out toward the bay. And running through the front yard was a lovely little stream, Quail Creek, or Cordonices, as it's called in Spanish. Now, how I got the place is interesting. I'd been living on a houseboat in the Berkeley Marina. Meredith had actually been born there at home on the boat. But when her mom and I separated, we agreed to both move off. I'd fix it up some, which I did, and Susan would negotiate the sale. Meanwhile, a member of the congregation whom I'd been visiting for a year and a half suddenly died. And out of the blue, her heir calls me up to offer me his mom's house in exchange for modest rent and disposing of her possessions, plus some minor repairs and gardening. So it all worked out silver lining during a very, very cloudy period of my life. Now, it happened that one day, not long after my daughter and I had moved in, quite by coincidence, I was standing in the front yard, and who should walk by but this Sasahara Monastery fellow, Lou Hartman. This was amazing because he lived and worked in Monterey County, a 100 miles south, and I was in an obscure, non-commercial corner of Berkeley. When suddenly I looked up and saw this bald man walking by in long black robes, my God, I thought, I know that guy. That's Lou Hartman, who led our Oasis retreat at the church. 
It's amazing. Anyway, I immediately greeted him and invited him to sit down with me on a little bench there next to the creek in my yard, which he did. I wanted very much to reach out to him. We had spoken, as I mentioned, a little that Sunday morning two months earlier. But after a couple of minutes, he'd said in a kindly but firm manner, we're supposed to be quiet while making this food. Intimidated, I immediately shut up. But now was my chance, and I jumped at the coincidence. I told him of my emotional pain and sense of estrangement from my spouse and even from myself, indeed from God, from the world of nature, from the whole basic rhythm of life. And Lou shared with me, too, struggles from his own life that put mine in perspective. Then, after sitting quietly for some time, side by side, and listening to the water gurgling by, Lou offhandedly remarked, This brook runs from the hills to the bay. For convenience, we give it a name, Cordonesis. But really, it's always changing, always in flux, always in dynamic in a relationship with everything around and within it. We sat for another eight or ten minutes before saying goodbye and parting. Well, just like the river, so each person, each one of us, though given a permanent name, is always changing and always in subtle biological, chemical, and social interrelationship with everything and everyone else. For convenience, we take permanent names. In truth, we are always in total transformation. Meditation is the art and practice of breaking through our hard-headed, never-ending thoughts and will and coming to experience or feel a deep sense of connection or relationship with the whole of creation and our deepest selves. Meditation is getting that hit of the really real, of feeling connected again, relinked, remembered to the whole. Now, the word meditation comes from the Latin root meditare, meaning to muse, reflect upon, or care. It's not really all that exotic. Leisurely turning over of an idea or image and allowing the unconscious to bubble up and infuse one's mind. As a youngster, as I've mentioned, I used to spend countless hours playing in the little stream across from my house. It calmed me down. Many of you have had similar experiences or observed others so engaged. Water play, maintained the developmental psychologists, is the greatest thing for children. My landscape architect's sister once remarked to me how healing and comforting water is, how it's forever graceful and always fits in, the perfect addition. A fountain does wonders, she explained. If you only have so much money, put in a fountain. So it came to me, still sitting there creekside, Lou Hartman had gone off to practice his Zen elsewhere. Your meditation, Steve, is this creek. I said to him, I realized myself. Get to know it from the headwaters to the sea. It was not the Amazon River, so from the headwaters to the sea was quite manageable. The road to heaven leads through hell, wrote Dante, or as Thoreau put it, I cannot come nearer to God in heaven than I live to Walden even. The only way for me or anybody to be healed, to become at one with the source of our being is through the personal and the concrete. 
than I live to Walden even. As Thoreau writes elsewhere in Walden, expressing this emergence of the eternal through the concrete, time is but the stream I go a-fishing in. I drink of it, but while I drink, I see the sandy bottom and detect how shallow it is. Its thin current slides away, but eternity remains. I would drink deeper fish in the sky whose bottom is pebbly with stars. And so I did. Follow back any coincidence far enough, say the Hindus, and you find an inevitability. The series of coincidences that, one, got me involved with the Oasis project, two, had put me in a little cottage, and now, three, the uncanny chance meeting with Lou Hartman, and yet the inevitability that I was to follow out to get to know this creek, this Cordonese's watershed, that my way to be healed, to cross the divide in myself, in my relations with Susan and with the world, in other words, to reach my own inner watershed and start coming back to down to earth on the other side of the divide, my way to do that was to get to know this little watershed running, as it happened, right through my front yard. And so I trudged from the top of the Berkeley Hills. There were four little spring-fed tributaries all the way to the Pacific. Interestingly, of all the creeks in Berkeley, there are ten. Cordonesis is the only one that was never culverted, or as the engineers put it, remains unimproved. <laughs> it runs open and unimpeded from the headwaters to the bay. In many places, its course divided people's properties. It also curved through three city parks, the town Rose Garden, where it officiated at several weddings, two schoolyards behind the Westbury Library, skirted the edge of St. Mary's College High School, and here and there, like at my house, went through someone's yard. Over a period of about six weeks, I trudged, come what may, along almost every inch of Cordonese's course from its sources all the way to the sea where thoroughbred racehorses at the Albany racetrack actually grazed alongside of it and drank. A free-flowing, unpolluted stream running right through the middle of town. I've continued meditating in this way ever since. It's become one of my spiritual practices. Where Carol and I live in the East Highlands section of Renton, that's meant getting to know Madsen Creek a picture of which, taken a half mile from our house 10 days ago, graces our order of service. Madison Creek drains an area to the south and west of the Maple Valley Highway between 190th Street and the Maplewood Golf Course, behind which it tumbles into the Cedar River and thence into Lake Washington. From water pouring off my roof, runoff flows a course through the drainage ditches leading about a mile away into that pond, Wetland 14 natural area, and from there to Lake Desire and across from Garvey Park open space. Skirting neighborhoods north and east of Fairwood, it now begins a rapid descent down the embankment toward Maple Valley Highway near 150th Street southeast underneath and alongside the road 
and then merges with the cedar and begins to go more native as it gets closer to Mount Washington, I mean Lake Washington. I feel much closer to this community by virtue of these walks and much more appreciative of its natural landscape. Walking in such a way engages the whole person and all the senses. It's tantric, actually, peripatetic, somatic, or bodily, involving one's entire central nervous system. It is not a head trip, as folks say. It's yoga and it's healing. The watershed way, writes Peter Warshall, means looking at landscape, looking at water as it exists in landscapes, learning to think and feel like water. Think and feel like water. There's nothing weaker than water, said Lao Tzu, but none is superior to it for overcoming the hard, for which there is no substitute, that weakness overcomes strength and gentleness overcomes rigidity, no one doesn't know. Think and feel like water. Drawn effortlessly by gravity, water is never pushed by anything from the outside. It humbly and always seeks the lowest point and the middle ground. It's even and equal. Always it finds the middle course between the hard, unyielding mountains on either side. Whatever is stringing you out or keeping you feeling unconnected, the watercourse way can help you find the middle ground. Between the extremes of left-wing and right-wing, Shiite and Sunni, husband and wife. Always the watershed way steers the middle course between extremes on either side. And the river keeps moving. You can't step in the same river twice. Who who doesn't know that? Of course, we all want to. We all long for the good old days and to have things just the way they used to be, wrapped up and held tightly in our mother's loving arms. Alas, we cannot do that. It does not work either. It won't heal us. You can't go home again, wrote the novelist Thomas Wolfe. You can go straight ahead and discover your way home that way, but never back. Here's my main point. The watershed way of seeking the middle ground, of keeping moving, is what we have to do in all these situations of loss, grief, and bereavement. It's not only what we have to do, it's all we really can do. And it works. It heals. It connects. Connects us with our deeper selves, with others, with the earth, and with the ones we know and love. And through all of this, with the vital energy, the incredible Tao, the mind of the deity, transcendent and yet intimate, the Atman, that is Brahma, the Immaculate Heart. I cannot come nearer to heaven than I live to Walden even. I am its stony shore and the breeze that passes o'er. In the hollow of my hand are its waters and its sand, and its deepest resort lies high in my thought. In a hundred hundred different ways throughout his collective works, the psychiatrist C.G. Jung repeatedly says that the universe and the psyche are one piece. viewed 
in the first place from outside the universe and the psyche from inside. <clears throat> or again, as Thoreau writes in Walden Pond, I am its stony shore. Coming to think and feel like water connects us with the flow of life, larger than each one of us, and yet flowing collectively through all of our souls. And it will always come with meditation. This renewed sense of connection, of atonement or at-one-ment, whether it's sitting in a lotus position doing yoga, walking along the river, or, for instance, working in building with stone, as was true for Carl Jung himself. The psychiatrist explains in his autobiography how, when he was 45, he found himself at the end of his rope. Despite a successful practice, he'd made his break with Sigmund Freud and started publishing books on alchemy, at which point the scientific community had all but repudiated him. He began to feel as though and wonder whether or not he was going psychotic. He had other problems, too, and he didn't know what to do or where to turn. Isolated and alone he was, literally at his wit's end. In desperation, he said to himself, well, I'll do the very next thing that comes to my mind. And what bubbled up was a memory that as a little boy he had loved playing with pebbles. He'd made little forts and enclosures and so on. So he said, okay, I'll do it again. And he began more, and he began once again to play with rocks and pebbles, just as he had as a little boy. At lunchtime, he'd leave his office, go outside, kneel down on the ground, and play. He built little houses, a fortress, then an enclosure, and he kept at it. He built a whole village. Next, he began designing the indoors of each little building, including a room in which he built an altar. He continued this practice for weeks and months. As time went on, he started working with stone, carving on it until, wouldn't you know it, it became his meditation. He began carving symbols and icons out of stone, some of them incredibly intricate and ornate. Eventually, he built by himself a retreat off his house on Lake Geneva and carved entirely out of stone which became his centering place or place of prayer, his holy ground, all out of stone, and all beginning with a spontaneous, half-conscious recollection of playing as a child with pebbles. Well, whatever your meditation is, whether it's working with stone like Carl Jung or walking along the stream like me, gardening like many people I know in this church, running, painting, playing or listening to music, being part of the, what, the Swedish golf, uh, bicycle club, um, walking the dog, yoga. These are, and other forms of meditation are all ways to break through and connect us to the inner source, the wellspring of transformation and renewal that Henry David Thoreau and others have called God. For me, crossing all that divides, reaching a metaphorical inner watershed and starting a less anguished gravity-assisted path back down to earth, back down to interpersonal connectedness and happiness has come and continues to come by simply walking along the stream. Thinking and feeling like water 
Following the humble middle ground, we get in touch with the heart of what is going on within and simultaneously all around us, the imminent transcendent stream of life flowing always through our individual hearts and minds. This is watershed consciousness. Amen.